0: We're going to have a look at what the Bible says today in James chapter 3 and 4, the bits we had read for us. Um, Really, really important bit of the book of James. How about I pray that we'd be attentive today. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Bible that you give us. Please help us to understand it today rightly and to be convicted where we need to be convicted. And please empower us by your wisdom and by your spirit to change and live better serving Jesus. Amen. Now, folks, um, I'm just going to get straight into it um, because um, verse chapter three, verse one, isn't about you. It's about well, it's not about most of you. It's about me and Stuart. Um, so, read chapter three, verse one, and uh, here's the mini sermon before the sermon. Um, but I don't want to ignore this because it came up. Check out what verse th- chapter three, verse one says in your Bible on page twelve hundred and eighteen. Should be Bibles around. Um, It says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, That's a big deal to me. Uh, I want to respond to that and I want to uh, reflect on that with you and tell you what that means to me. Um, We're actually all answerable to the Lord Jesus for how we serve him. Uh, We all have resources and abilities and opportunities that are unique to us and one day as we stand forgiven before Jesus, he will still ask of us an account for how we've used what we've got in serving him. All of us, especially teachers. Teachers have a higher standard of evaluation when Jesus uh, uh, evaluates us on that day, judges us on that day, and that's only right because Christian teachers represent Jesus himself and what Jesus is on about. And more than that, Christian teachers talk to Jesus' church that he died for and purchased with his own blood. So it's only right we get evaluated more strictly than anybody else. But um, It's a very high stakes affair, therefore. Here's what it means to me that we'll get evaluated more strictly, that I'll get evaluated more strictly than most of you. Um, You might notice we work really hard at this church to open the Bible and talk about what it says. I can tell you we work very hard at reading the text and trying to understand what it says and not what we want it to say or just our favourite bit or that kind of thing. On that Day of Judgment, what I desperately want the Lord Jesus to say to me is, what I want to be able to say to him, first of all, is I taught his agenda, not mine, and I want him to agree with that opinion. Um, And so you might occasionally actually find me a bit pedantic about getting right what the Bible says, and I will be pedantic, because I'm called to care a great deal about getting God's word right and seeing that we understand it together and we obey it rightly. It also means, just a sermon point, we aren't here, Stuart and I, when we get up to preach to entertain you. We naturally assume in our society, I think, that everything's for our entertainment and if it isn't interesting enough, we stop listening, we stop putting effort in, right? It's been a a movement with television, from radio to television, and entertainment becomes more absorbing, has to be more entertaining to grab our attention. Uh, We need to repent of that attitude when it comes to sermons and hearing God's word. Uh, We aren't here to be entertained. What we're here to do is to engage with what the living God says to us and to respond rightly i got to say, it is very easy as a teacher of people to be motivated purely by wanting people to like you. It's the problem with people work. Uh, I want to be appreciated, I want you to value my hard work, I want you to respect me, all those sorts of things. But those kind of self-centred ambitions, when they motivate us, well, that's what the passage today is going to talk about us, uh, is just what we need to repent of. Because what I need to be motivated by is that on the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I've appreciated what you've had to say from the pulpit because you've actually been speaking my words. And that's, that, that's desperately what I want. Um, so that's what 3 verse 1 means to me. Uh, I, I just think it's worth you knowing. Uh, I'll be evaluated, judged more strictly than most of you. And so if you're going to think about going into a teaching ministry, reflect on that carefully. Reflect on how faithful you need to be amidst the pressures to do otherwise. And please, please pray for Stuart and I as we come to teach the Bible. Because we're going to be giving an account to Jesus for it. That's the sermon out before the sermon, though. Uh, friends, today we're going to talk about sin. Uh, Christians have been forgiven our sins because of Jesus. That's why we confess our sins. Because we sin, we do the wrong thing. But also because we know that God forgives us in Jesus. It's wonderful. Uh, but Jesus also turns, it teaches us to turn away from our sin... And to live new lives by his example. And so, until Jesus returns, living that way is going to be significant, significantly difficult. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 2, and it just talks about how difficult it is. It says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. We all stumble in many ways. It's just a fact. We all stuff up, to say it in a modern way. We all make mistakes. We all go the wrong way. We all sin. Just a fact about life. Now, a big question I want you to think about for today. Why do people sin? Just think to yourself for it, about, about it for a moment. Um, it's, it seems so obvious, so normal that we don't ever think about it. Why do people sin? Why do people choose to do the wrong thing? Just think for a moment. I think when you think about it, it seems quite extraordinary because everybody I ever speak to believes there's a difference between right and wrong and we should do right. I mean, we disagree about what right and wrong are often, but I think everybody basically agrees there's right and there's wrong and you should, be, you should do right. That's built into the whole concept. You should do the right thing. And yet, universally, everybody does things that they know and believe are wrong. Why on earth do we do that? Why do people sin? The Bible teaches us that sin is... Normal human beings have tremendous pressure on them, both from outsiders and from insiders, such that it's inevitable that we'll sin. Uh, Christians and non-Christians alike face the same pressures. Um, A classic way to package it is to talk about there's three pressures in life that cause you to lead you to sin. Uh, They are the world, the flesh and the devil. Um, If you've been to a traditional baptism service, um, you may have heard those things as the enemies that you're supposed to renounce when you're baptised to follow Jesus, the world, the flesh and The devil. I just want to tell you what those three things are. They're All, all three are in this passage that we've had read. Um, if you've got a Bible there, chapter 4, verse 4, um, talks about the world. Um, 4, verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Now, world doesn't mean the physical planet we live on. Uh, there's a person influenced by world I'll just put up on the screen. Uh, world doesn't mean the physical planet. God's creation is good. He invented it. He thinks it's good. <laughs> World, when uh, a lot of the Bible writers use it, is talking about kind of the system of society we live in. It's talking about the influences of institutions and customs and traditions and habits and our relationships and our worldviews and all this stuff that's an alternative way of life to God's way. Um, Think about it like this way. Um, Basically, world is talking about the rules of the game you play in life. Now, just imagine for a moment that the whole world is playing soccer. It's not hard at the moment. The whole world is playing soccer... Um, The point is, Christians aren't aren't called to say, you guys are all playing soccer, play soccer better than other people. Christians are told, play a different game. Recognise the fact that basketball's a better game and the NBA finals are on right now and watch that instead of the Blasted World Cup. That's what he's saying. Well, sorry, that's an illustration. You get you get my point. Christians aren't called to live by the same rules as our society, only better. We're called to live an entirely different game. Here's the, the game of our society. We're taught from cradle to the grave. Work really hard in achieving things for yourself and fulfilling your desires. I think that's the game of life that's thrown at us all the time, every day. It's built into... Our institutions, our customs, our thought patterns, everything. Throw yourself into achieving your plans, your ambitions. It's about my desires, my ambition. That's the world. God says play a different game. Different rules, entirely different game. Work out what God wants and sacrifice your selfish ambitions and desires in order to honour God and serve other people. And see, this game isn't about me. It's actually about other people now. It's an entirely different game, not just the same game, only better. Now, that's what the world is, because the world keeps influencing us to play its game. And we keep looking at the world has and going, hey, that looks pretty good. I think I might do that too. I think I want to grab at that too. And this is where the external pressure becomes an internal one. The world is the external pressure on us. What we call the flesh is the internal pressure. Um, It's called the flesh in the Bible, not in this book, but it talks about the same concepts with different words. Um, It's called the flesh because it's about our natural bodily desires, it's about the stuff we naturally want. Uh, it's aspects of what you might call the heart or the mind and our appetites and our desires and our wants and those kinds of things. It's saying we fleshly beings like us are really weak and we want bad things. Our desires actually betray us. Now just flick back in James to, to chapter 1 and you'll see what I'm talking about because um, it's a really clear bit about that. This is a description of how, how the flesh works, about how our own Wants betray us and lead us into sin. Verse 13 of chapter 1 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, because God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and they are enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. It's describing kind of a, a trajectory of life. Where we want badly and that builds on itself and leads us into further sin and it just grows and grows and grows. That's the flesh. You might think, well, if that's built into me, if it's part of who I am, if it permeates all of me, where on earth did that come from? Um, Basically, friends, since the fall, we've all been broken versions of ourselves. Our desiring, wanting mechanisms that are part of how we think about things and feel things are corrupted and they misdirect us all the time. And this is where sin gets really, really personal, Because the Bible insists that we can't save ourselves. We can't just choose to be better and succeed. We can't just choose to become perfect in our own strength. We're actually utterly incapable of fixing ourselves. And that's the tragedy of the flesh. And it permeates every aspect of who we are. Um, Have a look at chapter 3, verse 14. Um, We've just heard about the flesh described today in in chapter 3 there. Verse 14 says... If you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts... This is the stuff inside me, originating in me. Uh, do not boast about it or to deny the truth. Verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. It leads to doing wrong. It leads to sin. Envy and selfish ambition. It's, uh, they're kind of the same thing from different angles. What envy is about is about pushing other people down. Both are about pride, really. It's about me wanting to be important and elevate myself. But envy is about pushing other people down. Pride is about pulling myself up. It's a selfish ambition It's about elevating me. Um, Both are about self-servingness. They're about acting in the interests of me. It's something the Prophet Jeremiah spoke about in really startling terms. We deceive ourselves all the time. I've just got the slides out of order. Um, It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We even deceive ourselves about our own motives and why we're really doing things. I heard an extraordinary interview with this guy doing wonderful charity work. And it's just amazing how sin just infiltrates everything. He was doing this wonderful work and so it's so hard to criticise him. But you listen to the man's motives and why he thinks other people should be involved. He says, you should be involved in this kind of work as much as it enables you to feel good about yourself. I'm just going, I thought the point of serving people was people, like other people, rather than me. It's very hard to criticise him because the work he was doing was wonderful. But this is the thing, the tragedy about flesh, it just permeates everything we do. Our motives so often deceive ourselves. There's the world, there was the flesh, there was the, then there's the devil, which we sang a song about. Satan is a real being, a real supernatural being who works against our following God, basically. Um, Since the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's the good news. Um, The Bible talks about him as pretty weak in comparison to us. We can resist him and he'll flee away from you. Isn't that extraordinary? Because you think, devil's been around a lot longer than I have. But because of Jesus, I have the power to resist him. And so we... So, I'll get beyond that. Um, so, in chapter 4, verse 7, have a look. It talks about that. It says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But you have to resist him. See, so he's an outside force influencing us, tempting us to sin, um, that kind of thing. Now, there's those three things world, flesh, and devil, um, and they all work together in the same events. Here's the other thing I want you to understand they all kind of overlap. And they're all at work in all kinds of things in life. And so in the passage, if you read it carefully, you'll see in chapter 3, verse 14, harbouring envy and selfish ambition is our flesh at work. Then you come to chapter verse 15, and it calls that same thing demonic. So it's the devil. And then you come to chapter 4, and it calls that way of living the world. since says the world, the flesh, and the devil are influencing us to do the same things, basically the end that we would sin. Now, if you read the, the, this whole passage, you'll see The uh, aspect of sin he wants to focus on today is our sin affects how we relate to other people and it's actually very antisocial, it's very destructive and he wants to focus on how sin destroys relationships today. But before we get to that, I just want you to notice he talks about evil a lot, doesn't he? Does the passage seem a little bit extreme to you maybe? (laughs) As we're reading it, you hear the word evil a lot. I mean, it's just ordinary everyday human feelings and relationships he's talking about in the passage and so you ask yourself is having envy and selfish ambition really demonic I mean isn't that overstating it is the tongue really a world of evil among the parts of the body as it, as it says in chapter 3 verse 6 it just seems so over the top is it really evil is it really appropriate to talk about these normal human feelings and emotions and drives as evil have a look at chapter 4, verse one to, 1 to 4. It's just extraordinary. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Now, I, just side point, I don't think you're actually killing anybody at this church, by the way. It's a very Jewish way of describing sin in an extreme way. Immediately when people talk about uh, here, you envy or you have bad desires, so you kill, every Jewish person in the room goes, right, Cain and Abel, we mustn't envy our brother because that leads to murder. That's, that's, I think that's what it's getting at. But it's, it's talking about these desires, and they, they lead to all kinds of sin. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you, don't ask, you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? It makes God our enemy. It's just so extreme. Actually, I think he's making a really important and insightful point. His point is, the ordinary, everyday, selfish motives that we all have, that we all have, are the same things that cause all kinds of sin, all kinds of evil, from the most mundane, everyday office room bickering to people killing each other. It's the same motives, it's the same problem of sin that's at the root of them all. All people have the basic same reasons for sinning. The world, the flesh, and the devil influencing us. Now, I want to share you an example from something I've been reading at the moment. Um, Does anybody know who that man is, by the way? I I don't think I'd get it from that angle, actually, um, even though I've seen photos of him. Uh, That man's name is Adolf Eichmann. Does anyone know who Adolf Eichmann is? No? That is Adolf Eichmann at his trial at the District Court of Jerusalem in 1961. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi. Um, I've been reading about his trial. See, in World War II, the Nazi regime, if you don't know, systematically executed six million Jewish people. It's called the Holocaust, and it's one of the landmark evil events of modern history. It's just like the benchmark for evil in the way people think about it. Um, Adolf Eichmann was the man in charge of organising the logistics of the Holocaust. He made the trains run on time. He organised five or six million Jews to be able to... Moved to death camps so that they could be killed in their millions. Um, That was what he did for a living. The book I've been reading is by Hannah Arendt. Uh, She went to Jerusalem in 1961 to watch the trial, and she was very interested in analysing what on earth motivated this evil, evil man to do what he did. What she thought she would find is the sinister, calculating mind of a monster a person with the kind of pathological motives that normal human beings like us just couldn't possibly relate to. But what she found was far, far, far more chilling than that. Here's what she found. Adolf Eichmann was just utterly ordinary. He was utterly ordinary. He was dull. He had no extraordinary motives at all. If he lived in Oran Park, he wouldn't be the sort of person that goes out looking to kill people. It's hard to wrap your head around because this is the man who coordinated the Holocaust. What were his reasons? Well, his reasons, established over and over again, and he couldn't see beyond them, were that he wanted to belong. He wanted to feel like he belonged. He wanted to advance his career. He wanted to impress his friends and superiors. It was just a job. And he actually felt really hard done by that he hadn't been promoted further, more quickly, for how hard he'd worked and how successful he'd done at his job. And he he actually wasn't full of sinister, deliberate evil thoughts against Jewish people at all. He didn't think about them at all, is the problem. It wasn't that he was full of evil thoughts, it was actually that he was thoughtless, completely thoughtless. He was just completely incapable of sympathising with his victims. They weren't his victims, he was just doing his job as well as he could. And so Hannah Arendt turns up to this trial in Jerusalem, looking into the absolute darkest place in modern history the motives of the man who coordinated the Holocaust. And she found staring back at her the same motives that were in her heart and in the heart of every other person she's ever met selfish ambition, pride, preoccupation with self, thoughtless sinning that hides behind cliches that writes off other people, and over time builds up layers of resistance to even thinking about other people at all, or just leaving certain people outside of what your brain even cares to think about and consider. It's really chilling. It's what she called it. It's not extraordinary evil. She called it the banality of evil. Banal just means, or banal, I think it's how you're supposed to pronounce it. It just means mundane, ordinary, boring, everyday. It's just everyday, normal human sin. Evil doesn't come from extraordinary places. Evil comes from ordinary, sinful human desires. Now, our point, just so you understand me, isn't to say the Holocaust is less evil than it was. It is utterly evil. And Adolf Eichmann, I don't feel sorry for him for a minute. But he's just a normal human being. He doesn't have some evil gene that I don't have. He has the same motives, the same desires, the same world, flesh and the devil influencing him that I face and that you face too. Now, the book of James wants to put sin in our face and go, this is a real problem. The world, the flesh and the devil are real and powerful. But there's a big difference between what Hannah Arendt and other people who have followed her her, her research have taken Adolf Eichmann's trial and how James talks about sin. Here's the biggest difference. Yep, the world, the flesh and the devil work on people such that they sin and do awful, awful things at all kinds of levels and and, and magnitudes. But a lot of people thought that Adolf Eichmann's sin was inevitable in that system he lived in. He He had no choice in the end. And so people have said, well, you can only act a certain way. The book of James says that's absolute nonsense for Christians. Absolute nonsense. The world and the flesh and the devil are formidable opponents. But we've got Jesus. We've got the Holy Spirit. And so we can realistically strive to do better and to fight against sin and to do combat and to say that sin is not inevitable. It will not defeat me. We can oppose it and we can strive after God's way instead. So as you read this passage that seems so extreme about evil and human sin, all the way through it, he's going, and you're a Christian and it must not be that way with you because God has equipped you to live differently. There's a few reasons. Have a look at, just flick back to chapter 1, verse 5. He talks about wisdom a lot. There's four things I want to draw your attention to that he talks about um, fighting with. How do we fight as Christians against the world, the flesh and the devil? Chapter 1, verse (laughs) 5. Um, he introduced this theme of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to everyone without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Wisdom is the skill of living life rightly under Jesus. It's knowing how to do it, practically day by day, in all the million situations that you can come up against. It's having the skill of living by the rules of God's game against the world's game whilst you live in the world, if I can put it that way. It's about knowing how to make practical decisions in all areas of life that honour Jesus. Now, God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to teach us to live that way. It says God answers favourably. He gives wisdom to everybody who asks it. He promises it. It's wonderful. Now, this thing, wisdom, it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we become Christians. If you read James very carefully, um, he doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. But every time he talks about the word of truth wisdom, that kind of thing, substitute the word spirit and it makes sense almost. <laughs> That's because they; it, it, those things are so much the work of the spirit that they can kind of just express what the spirit does for us in a way. So pursue wisdom, pursue the teaching, the changed mind that the spirit of God teaches us is what he's going on about. Now last week Stuart had a real challenge with his um, sermon um, because he needed to make you excited about pursuing righteousness. That's challenging because our Society thinks righteousness is a dumb word and a dumb concept and you just need to sort of get on with life and try and be nice. Not righteous, that's too extreme, just be nice. And so holy right living under God, uh, that just sounds kind of lame. And as Christians, it shouldn't sound kind of lame. That's the influence of the world telling us what's right and wrong. It's nonsense. God tells us what's right and wrong and what's valuable. And righteousness is the most valuable thing in the universe. That you would grow to be more like Jesus is God's will for your life. I can tell you that confidently. That is God's best for you and if you aren't eagerly pursuing righteousness, you're missing out on life. And this week I want to say the same thing about wisdom because wisdom is knowing how to live righteously amidst all the challenges of life. It's, it's just applying it to normal life and Christians should eagerly pursue wisdom because it's knowing how to live that way. It's being not just a thoughtless Christian that kind of goes to church and can't really figure out how to honour Jesus in this area. It's trying to make the wisdom that comes from God and knowing his Bible and knowing his spirit permeate everything. Um, But again, wisdom sounds kind of lame, doesn't it? Our world doesn't have much of a place for wisdom. Wisdom is just working hard and and buying your house. Um, I looked up wisdom on the internet. What's wisdom look like? If you look wise man up in Google Images, you already know what the image that comes up first is, don't you? They all look like this. Wise man. Wise man. I discovered that wise men, have uh, all of them have different beards, but they all have beards, and the beards are all of a certain length. That's what a wise man is, according to Google Images, um, which is a pity. <laughs> um, I need to grow my beard longer. Far out. Uh, it's not a wise beard. That's what I learned. Friends, wisdom should be one of the most basic things Christians pursue. We should be infatuated with it. We should be striving after it. We should just want it. We should be praying for it. Church, I think we need to strive after wisdom more and just see it as the most wonderful thing in the world because have a look at what chapter 3 verse 2 says it says we all stumble in many ways we all sin but then what does it say anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep their whole body in check you see the whole body working against it keeping the body in check and its desires but who's never at fault in what they say is perfect perfect to us sounds a little uh, confusing Uh, it's basically complete, mature People, as they grow in Jesus and become mature in his wisdom, what's it say? Are able to not be at fault in what they say. They're able to control their tongue. They're able to speak in a way that benefits other people. Friends, we need to pursue wisdom so we know how to do that better and better. So there's wisdom. There's maturity, pursuing maturity and wisdom. Now, the third thing he says, um, it's not in any order, but he says resist, two things. Have a look at uh, chapter 4, verse 7. What does it say? Resist the devil. Good. I'm glad it got you. Um, Satan will tempt us to turn aside from God's way. It says, instead, when that's happening, turn to God instead. You can't just sort of fight the devil off. you need an alternative. Devil or God, run towards God when you're being tempted. Pray to God for help. and the devil, the coward, the defeated coward, will run away. That's what it says. Resist the devil. That's how we do about battle. But we also have to fight ourselves. In 4 verse 6, it has kind of this little proverb thing, and it says, God opposes the proud, but it shows favour to the humble. What it's saying is, if you're a person preoccupied with yourself and your desires and your ambitions, God is against you. God does not want you to succeed in that way. He's actually against living that way. If you want God on your side, humble yourself, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. We need to fight ourselves. We need to fight our own selfish ambition that won't entirely be done away with until Jesus returns, but which we need to fight in the present, and we're able to fight in the present. And then in the middle, verses 8 to 10, there's this another really extreme-sounding part. Uh, it says, come near to God, he'll uh, come near to you. Well, listen to this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What it's giving a picture of is recognising that that thing I did was really, really profoundly wrong. I behaved wretchedly in this situation, recognising for what it is, and repenting, responding in an appropriate way to God, but remembering that God's ready to forgive us and restore us to himself. Just give me a moment here. Yep. Just, uh, friends, there's there's two major sections there. I just want to summarise so you can read this later and think it through um, because it's really important that we think this through practically. Um, Chapter three is mainly about um, how we use our tongue, right? How we speak. Um, You might immediately read it and go, oh, he's saying don't swear. He's actually not saying don't swear. Other parts of the Bible say don't swear, but this isn't focused on that at all. What this is focused on is the power your tongue has to harm other people. In fact, it harms relationships so much, it can dictate the entire course of our lives. And so he uses two illustrations, and it's just like sermon illustrations, you know? Hey, horse people, you know how horses are led along by like, their mouth? And ship people, that's kind of like the ancient version of rev heads. So you rev head ship people. Um, you know how like there's a tiny rudder that steers the ship? Your mouth's like that. It dictates the course of your life. It's actually amazing how small a thing it is, but it does such terrible things. Have a look at verse 5. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. It expresses your selfish ambition. That's what boasting is. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small small spark. There's another illustration. Pyros, there's your illustration. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and in itself is set on fire by hell. The world, the flesh, and the devil are hard at work on your tongue and how you use it, and it will affect other people and it will set the course of your life. And it'll make us hypocrites. Because as verse 9 says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with that same tongue we curse human beings who have be made in God's likeness. How can the same tongue <laughs> praise God and then curse people who are made in God's image and who he cares very, very deeply for and treat them as if they're okay to be cursed? It's just hypocrisy. It's saying this should not be. Fight it. Can both fresh water and salt water f- flow from the same spring? incompatible. The same mouth shouldn't be praising and cursing. Here's three points of application for how we speak. First one, the enemy of speaking well is just thoughtlessness I think. Um, What my application is for speaking is regularly reflect on how you spoke in specific conversations. I think we need to think through how we said specific sentences and why we said it that way. I think we need to be specific in that and how we reflect. What we need to ask ourselves is, why did I say it that way? What was I hoping to achieve in saying it like that? How did my words affect the other person, whether I intended it or not? Because both are important. How could I have spoken more to their benefit? What was motivating me when I spoke that way? We need to reflect on those things regularly. Then we need to pray, secondly. And then we need to practice it. And then we need to repeat it over and over again that's what growing in maturity and wisdom Now we speak looks like. We need to reflect. I think it's the thing that uh, doesn't come naturally and I, I just thought, yeah, I'm going to have to do that. I don't think about how I speak very reflectively at all. So let's engage in that. Let's grow in likeness with how we speak. Now, verse 13 to 18, it talks about how wisdom is seen in the positive effect on relationships. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Oh. Now last week, here's a he's, check, you were listening last week. Last week, how do you tell the difference between genuine faith in God and false faith? What's the proof? Did anybody listen last week? Sorry? Works. Good. How you live? It's... Do you live in a way that's righteous? Do you pursue righteousness? Genuine faith works. It's faith that works. That's what... I should get rid of this image. Um, It's faith that works. That's the difference between fake faith and real faith. Now, how do you tell the difference between genuine wisdom from God and worldly wisdom? Well, one of the main ways is how it affects the people around you, how it changes your relationships. See, it's saying wise people relate in humility. Wise people, come down to verse 17 to 18, relate in all these wonderful ways. And they're all relationship words. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then it's peace-loving. It's considerate of other people. It's submissive. It doesn't out to just get my opinion and, and, and all the time. It's full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, not biased towards people. It's one of the horrible things that holds back relationships, injustice, and it's sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of Righteousness. What that means is people who bring peace to their relationships just find life gets better because people pursue good character and they can live the right way more easily and it's just a really good environment to be in. Now, somebody pointed out to me during the week, we're chatting at Life Group, um, and somebody said, you know, I think I find a lot of Christians don't want to bring hard questions up. They don't want to raise issues because they think they're starting fights. And it says we're supposed to be peacemakers. So somebody's gossiping or slandering somebody in the office. We don't want to raise it up. We don't want to cause waves um, because that would be the opposite of peace, wouldn't it? Um, It's worth recognising when we talk about peace, we mean something different than the Bible does. When we talk about peace, we just mean the absence of conflict. It's just the bad thing's not there, right? When the Bible talks about peace, it means the presence of harmony. Absence of conflict and the presence of harmony. So if there's gossiping and slandering in your office, that is not peace, (laughs) And a peacemaker, and here's where wisdom really comes in, will look to see what they can say and how they can deal with that in a mature way to bring harmony. And so it's counterintuitive. In order to be a peacemaker, that actually means interceding and having difficult conversations often. But doing it in a healthy way, in a godly way, and that takes a lot of wisdom. And now you can see why we're praying for wisdom. Here's the question to leave you with about how you're going with wisdom. How does my behaviour contribute to bringing wholeness and harmony to my church relationships, to my family, to my workplace? How does my relational behaviour, how does how I relate to other people contribute to bring harmony in my relationships? Because that's what wisdom will do for us as we grow in it. I reckon that's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace, who bring peace to their relationships, reap a harvest of righteousness. Life just becomes better. All the contexts you relate in are just better. It's wonderful. This is the way we're supposed to live. How about I pray for us that uh, God would give us wisdom and we'd really, really want it. (laughs) And how about I also pray that we'd have strength for combat against the world, the flesh and the devil. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and that he has saved us from sin. Thank you that you are merciful to us, even though we still struggle with sin and still sin too often. Um, Father, we want to pray for your strength and your wisdom to fight the world, the flesh and the devil and to live righteously. We want to have more wisdom as you promised to give to us to be able to have the skill to live that way more and more and better and better. Please give us the skill of godly wisdom more and more. And please help us to be skillful peacemakers in our relationships. Please help our wisdom to lead that way so that we'd have greater harmony in our relationships. Thank you so much, Father, that your way is best. Please help us to want to know your way better, confident that your way is best, and to grow in it. Amen.